Good morning, everyone. If I could ask you to take your seats, we'll get started. Good morning, I'm Damon Wilson. I'm Executive Vice President here at the Atlantic Council, and it's a real pleasure to welcome you to today's discussion, A New Dawn, Russia and the West After the U.S. Presidential Election. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our partners who have made today possible in working with us, Johns Hopkins SICE, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, the University of Pennsylvania, and the Charles Koch Institute as well. I'd also like to take this opportunity to welcome our board director, General Breedlove. It's a tremendous uh, pleasure to have you in the house, NATO's former Supreme Allied Commander Europe. It's a pleasure to welcome you back to the council for the keynote this afternoon. We're looking forward to that. We've got a terrific program today. We're really looking forward to this. And I encourage everyone who's here in the room, as well as all of those that are following us uh, live online, to join the discussion by using the, the hashtag RussiaFactor as well as uh, at the handle AC Eurasia. So in five days, the American people will elect a new president. There's no denying that this has been one of the most interesting election cycles in recent history. So regardless of who the American people choose on election day, the next president's clearly gonna face many difficult decisions. An assertive Russia under President Vladimir Putin will be chief among them. With the ongoing conflicts in Ukraine and Syria, the rise of far-right political parties in Europe and their ideological affiliation with the Kremlin, and alleged Russian interference in the U.S. presidential election itself, the next U.S. president will need a clear and definitive strategy for addressing Putin's Russia. So today's conference convenes top Russia experts to bring a plurality of views into dialogue, and I suspect a bit of debate, uh, with each other on these issues. Um, here at the Council, we understand that there are serious international challenges posed by Putin's Russia, which informs our work. Um, these are challenges that could not only threaten global stability and security, but also undermine a rules-based international order. There are differing views on what the next administration's Russia policy should be. Should the U.S. engage Russia, or should we pursue more policy of containment or even disruption? Will doubling down on our security commitments in Europe and elsewhere deter or provoke Russia? This will be a difficult balance for the next president to strike, and striking that balance is what we're going to grapple with in today's conversations. I will now turn over the floor to get this conversation begun to our first panel to discuss the hotly contested issue in this election cycle, the Russia factor in the U.S. presidential elections. So please join me in welcoming our distinguished speakers for this panel. Let me invite Dr. Mitchell Orenstein, who will serve from UPenn, who will serve as the moderator, uh, and the rest of the speakers to join the stage, please. Welcome, everybody. We are here with... Uh, um, to discuss a really important issue, Russia factor in U.S. presidential elections. Uh, and I'll go from, from my left here with uh, uh, Mr. Stephen Lee Myers, who's a correspondent of the New York Times and author of the book, uh, The News Are. Uh, Miriam Elder, who is a world editor at BuzzFeed News and uh, has been responsible for setting up a network of uh, correspondents uh, internationally uh, for that organization um, with uh, uh, Dr. Michael Desch, a professor of political science and director of international studies center at uh, Notre Dame University. And uh, John Haynes, who's co-director of the Eurasia program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Um, I want to begin, um, I want to begin this discussion today with a number of important and hopefully controversial questions. 
And I'm going to start with, uh, with Miriam Elder and ask, um, you know, one of the big issues I think was implied by the introduction is has Russia intervened in the U.S. presidential elections? I think that's still kind of a matter of debate. Uh, maybe not, but you can maybe tell me your views about that. Um, well, that question can be taken in, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. Um, I guess the most concrete thing to look at is the role of uh, Russian hackers and misinformation in the campaign. And it really was an extraordinary moment when the Obama administration called out Russia for being behind these hacks mm -hmm. that we've seen. It's the, I believe the second time ever that the US has actually called out a specific state actor uh, to be involved in hacking. And uh, it fits in perfectly with Russia's kind of approach to uh, to undermining stability around the world, and in the United States in particular. Um, it questions the reality in which we're functioning. It questions the basis of uh, democracy as such. And so in that regard, yes. Then there's you know, the questions uh, of what are the connections between Trump's advisors and the Kremlin, which seem a lot less clear, but in terms of hacking the, the U.S. election in order to undermine its legitimacy, it seems a resounding yes. Right. A anybody have a, a dissenting or different view on the panel? Um, yeah, I I, what's sort of striking is that, you know, Russia is a big factor in the debate in the sense that uh, a lot of the big issues, most recently the emails, are associated with Russia. But I don't get the sense at the level of public opinion that, for example, the most recent email revelations are generating a lot of uh, heat because they came from Russia. That's what the Clinton campaign uh, is trying to push. Mm -hmm. But I think at the level of the American public, the story is the emails themselves. And mm -hmm. the fact that they came from Russia um, is really sort of secondary. So I, th I think there's a, a difference between how Russia plays at the elite level uh, in the uh, debate about the campaign and how it's playing in Peoria or yeah, South Bend. Yeah, I'm glad Bend. you mentioned that. So why, why do you think that the uh, U.S. electorate, if you can call it that, or many people, um, don't really seem to mind um, if Russia was involved in hacking or, or anything and are really much more interested in the content of these hacked emails or other sorts of uh, things. I mean, why, why is that, that people are just not interested in international affairs? Or? Well, I, I think it's not a question of they don't mind. I mean, I, I don't think the public is uh, happy with uh, a foreign government perhaps, you know, uh, reading uh, people's private emails. Uh, but I think just in the grand scheme of things of the big issues in the election, Russia just isn't that high for most uh, voters. I mean, foreign policy uh, is not generally one of the most salient issues at the mass level. And among the salient foreign policy issues, Russia pales compared to terrorism uh, or free trade uh, or even the, uh, the climate. Mm -hmm. uh, John, you seem like you want to jump in here. You have a, something? Yeah, I, th I think uh, intervention is a, is a pejorative term is an intentionally pejorative term, which I'm mm -hmm. not sure is particularly illuminating. So Russian action, for sure. Uh, foreign governments act all the time to intervene or to, to interject themselves into other, uh, other nations' elections. We saw that in Moldova over the, over the weekend. Uh, with respect to, to hacking, the, the instrumental use of hacking, I, I think is something we could spend a lot of time on, but the, but the real issue, the underlying issue is, 
if the documents produced are mm -hmm. genuine documents, mm -hmm. these are, we're not talking about the production of, of bogus documents, we're not talking about the production of, of genuine documents which have been doctored to change their, their meaning, which is what we saw, for example, in Ukraine with Russian intelligence agencies. Uh, if what we're looking at here is, by all accounts so far, the production of genuine documents, that feeds a narrative. That feeds directly into a Russian narrative which looks to discredit American democratic processes and political processes both here but more important abroad. You seem, you seem to want to say something to that, respond to that in some way. Um, I, I think there are a lot of things to say ab about that okay. because I think on, on one level there's, as Vladimir Putin might say, there's been a little bit of hysteria about Russia's role in, uh, in our election, um, which is not to say that it doesn't exist. And, and some people think you should take what Putin says and believe exactly the opposite of it. So, um, but I do think it's been whipped up perhaps for partisan reasons. I, I actually think it does resonate a little bit uh, in this election, particularly because you have one candidate who really has bucked the orthodoxy of his party. I mean, Republican uh, policy, I think. Um, uh, and there are people, Republicans, who are agitated by that. I mean, upset and think that, that Trump is just wrong on Russia. Uh, and I think, conversely, the Democrats have used Russia uh, as a very convenient um, um, instrument against Trump to tar him with Putin, um, to tar the aides who, who've worked there, and, and many of Trump's ideas. Um, you know, in, in re I, I think that there's no question now um, that Russia has intervened in some way. Um, you know, I, I agree that it, what that means exactly, um, why they're doing it, is still somewhat debated even inside the administration. Um, but I, I think that it, I, I'm sort of reminded of, you know, FDR's phrase about fear. You know, we, we need to kind of keep it a little bit in perspective. Mm -hmm. Let me ask a slightly different question bouncing off that. I mean, it seemed, what's striking to me is that um, you have uh, Republican voters, or approximately 85% of Republican voters around that, voting for a candidate who is openly pro-Russian, right? When in Washington, D.C., at least as I've experienced it, Republican Party has tended to be rather hawkish on Russia. How do you explain this, if not by that people just don't really care, actually, about the Russia issue so much? Well, but isn't that a sufficient explanation? I mean, I think the Trump phenomenon is not going to be explained uh, by Russia or even by foreign policy issues. It's, in effect, a, uh, a protest vote uh, against a lot of other issues in American politics. And, and so, in a way, the, uh, uh, the Russia issue is a, you know, is a little bit of a, uh, a side issue. You're absolutely right. There is, but both on uh, foreign policy and international engagement and on free trade, the political parties uh, have flip-flopped um, in this particular election. And that's an interesting story, but I think it's more a symptom uh, of what's behind Trump, which is a larger repudiation of business uh, as usual than any really concrete uh, position, certainly on Russia uh, or a lot of other foreign policy issues. Yeah, so let me ask, I mean, how is this going to affect policymaking in Washington? If, if the case that you've described is more or less right, uh, and you have the Republican Party electorally, flipping to a pro-Russia position, 
How does that affect policymakers in Washington, D.C.? I mean, a lot of people here in the audience know the policy community pretty well and know what I'm talking about with, you know, where Republicans typically stand. How is that going to change things? Well, I don't, I don't think that the, the Republican uh, establishment necessarily has changed yet. And obviously, it will depend on what happens on Tuesday. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of people, even before this election, were looking at how do we deal with um, a newly resurgent, uh, a newly aggressive, even belligerent uh, Russia now. I mean, that's a conversation that's been going on in this town, I think, for a couple of years now. Um, and that will continue, obviously. Um, but what outcome it takes uh, will, of course, depend on the election. And I'm, I'm not, I mean, if Donald Trump wins, I think he's going to come and have that conversation with the same people uh, in this town. N nonetheless, it strikes me that if you have, I mean, not only 40, per, you know, all these voters, right, voting for a pro-Russia candidate, all these Republican voters voting for a pro-Russia candidate, but you also have a lot of Republican politicians, right, going on record supporting a pro-Russia politician. And I mean, I guess I have to believe that things aren't going to change, but um, but it seems like something has changed, right? I, I don't think in the past that's happened before. And uh, rhetorically, doesn't it make it more difficult for people to take a, a hard line on Russia when they've endorsed a candidate that takes a soft line? But then you had, you know, Mike Pence coming out in the vice presidential debate and giving the exact opposite position to Donald Trump. So it seems like it doesn't seem to me like the Republican establishment has to suddenly switch and be slavishly, you know, pro-Putin and, and pro-Kremlin. I think there's going to be a huge reckoning in the Republican Party no matter what happens. And uh, Russia's going to be included in that. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure that pro-Russia maybe is, is altogether a fair characterization yeah. of, of Mr. Trump or, or, or Republican voters, um, I'm not sure you can be pro a country that aims nuclear missiles at you. So I don't think there's any question, hopefully, among anybody who's going to vote on, on Tuesday that Russia is an adversary. Uh, I think the issue is, is the nature of the engagement, whether, whether the question is there's our current engagement with Russia or how we've chosen to engage or they've engaged with us hasn't yielded results that anybody finds satisfactory. I think what we see is a reaction to that. Uh, walking away from plutonium disposition agreements doesn't favor either side. Yeah. I think looking at that as the beginning of a, it's a fraying effect that we see longstanding agreements between two countries starting to, starting to fall apart and, and mutual antagonisms exacerbating that. Mm -hmm. So if he's articulated anything with respect to Russia, it might be a um, bad phrase, but, but a reset, if you will. Where, where a different <laughs> approach, uh, hopefully we'll let the linguists get it yeah. right this time, yeah. uh, but a different approach that might be a more positive engagement. Yeah, I, I, John is absolutely right. I mean, I know you're just trying to be provocative for this thing in the morning, Mitch, that, but uh, <laughs> the idea that, uh, you know, the, the Trump is pro-Russian in anything other than being sort of less hawkish than Hillary Clinton you know, strikes me as uh, a bit of an overstatement. Certainly in terms of the American public, the American public is not pro-Russian. Uh, the public attitudes uh, towards Russia are not at Cold War levels, but uh, they're lower than they were in the heady days of the, uh, immediately po uh, the immediate post-Cold War period. But where the public, I think, is, uh, you know, breaking from the, uh, the old uh, hawkish consensus on Russia is uh, 
they're willing to stipulate that Vladimir Putin is a rotten guy and engaged in some nefarious behavior, but the idea that the United States has to uh, engage uh, uh, and contain Russia in the same assertive way that we did with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, that's where the evidence, uh, for example, uh, against further expansion of NATO, uh, evidence of uh, you know little public stomach for using American forces to defend uh, our new NATO allies in the Baltic states, uh, or using military force uh, in the context of a Russian escalation in eastern Ukraine, that's where you're seeing the public uh, breaking from, uh, from that hawkish consensus. I, I want to press you on that a little bit. I mean, you know, and, and here's speaking from the heart, not just as a provocateur of getting your, uh, the juices flowing here this morning. But, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that Trump is, if not a pro-Russia politician, and certainly a pro-Putin politician. I mean, he's made very, very favorable statements about Vladimir Putin, saying that he is a strong leader, a great leader, um, better than recent U.S. presidents. Um, he seems to be to admire his strong hand. Uh, he admires, um, you know, certain uh, tendencies that he has uh, and, and mechanisms of uh, wielding power. I mean, so is it really too much of an exaggeration to call him a uh, pro-Putin politician? I mean, it, and I, I don't. What I, I don't really hear, you know, so much, um, you know, from from him about um, what you know, what sort of different strategy you do to counter Russia. I'd rather hear him saying that, that um, he wants Russia as an ally, actually. Right. You know, if I could just jump in. Yeah. I, I've talked to some of the people who have advised Trump, and, and Trump himself, if you look at his, his record in Russia, I mean, they clearly approach Russia as a country, as a, as a policy differently. They look at the business opportunities that are there. Um, you know, they, is that pro-Russia or pro-Putin? Not necessarily, but they see it as, as a place where you can do business. And, and to the extent Trump has talked about policy um, uh, with re regards Russia, it's that if, if we got along better, perhaps we could resolve the situation with the Islamic right. State um, because we would have a more cooperative attitude instead of the sort of near proxy war we have going on in Syria right now. So do business. I think is the right way uh, mm -hmm. to think about it, but not business in the sense of opening, you know, Trump Casino Moscow, but do business in the sense uh, of uh, fight ISIS in Syria um, and deal with uh, the Iranian nuclear problem. And in both cases, you know, uh, people can be unhappy uh, with uh, the, the details uh, of these uh, business relationships, but you know, it, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, is that in a number of important cases, Russia and the United States have had more common interest than they've had opposing interest. And my sort of take in listening to Donald Trump is that this isn't uh, pro-Putin, uh, that this is a, a recognition that you got to do business uh, with people uh, who, with whom you have common interests. And there are big issues around the world that we do have common interests with the Russians on. I do think, though, just to clarify, yeah, that the business is part of it. Um, you know, you can go and you can, you can not just build casinos there. I don't mean that, Trump personally, but people who, you know, think of the energy trade, uh, any kind of uh, investment opportunities in Russia, um, you know, with natural resources and beyond. So I think that there's, 
that, that is what kind of unites a lot of the people around uh, Trump's campaign as they look at Russia. Miriam, you seem like you want to yeah. jump in well, on I this I think question. just that, that definition is, you know, of, of what it is to do business with Russia is really interesting because it's actually the definition of the reset, which, you know, Hillary Clinton championed, which is we work with Russia on things that we have aligned interests in, and we kind of put everything else aside that is going to be problematic, and that obviously blew up uh, in everybody's face. And I think it's actually much more interesting to discuss what Hillary Clinton's approach to Russia would be because that, to me, seems a lot less sure than than Trump, which is, you know, very much pro-Putin as an individual, pro-doing business, but, mm -hmm. to, you know, Hillary was seeing the reset kind of blow up and not have much of a replacement and not really understand what her position would be going forward. I, I just want to say I wasn't thinking Hillary Clinton. I was thinking Michael Corleone uh, <laughs> doing business. Uh, uh, but let's talk about Clinton for a second. I mean, I, I'm surprised that you say that, Miriam, because it seems to me pretty clear if you look at Michael McFaul or other people who are close to the, the Clintons, that um, that there's been a trajectory which is similar to say the, the the Bush two trajectory, which is you know first we try to have a good relationship and we're doing everything we can and overlooking a lot of issues, and then you know the confidence is abused enough in the U.S. perspective that ultimately they follow this arc to you know being firmly and sharply opposed and basically supporting a policy of containment of Russia. I mean, do you see anything different going on in the Clinton camp than that? Well, then, you know, other other side questions that have popped up in the interim come in, like Syria. So Hillary wants to impose a no-fly zone in Syria. Then what does that do to the relationship with Russia? I'm not sure that I have an answer. Mm -hmm. I, I would just add, if even not just the Bush administration, but the first Clinton administration as well. Every every presidency comes in and tries has to deal with Russia. And whoever's elected next week, they're going to come in and they're going to have to deal with Russia. Mm -hmm. And I, do, I don't think anyone's ever going to use the word reset again. Um, but that's what's going to happen. And, um, and, and it's unavoidable. So you think Clinton is going to start another reset? I think they will not use the word uh, or the silly red button, but the um, I can see uh, the red button going out. Yeah. But no, I mean you. You, I mean to the. I can't say that I can predict what Hillary Clinton's going to do as president, but I. I don't think it'll be a lot different than um, what you saw at the beginning of the administration. In that you, as Miriam was saying, try to figure out where can you work with. Russia right mm -hmm. now, you, mm -hmm. you know, something has to be done with Syria. This can't go on like this forever. Uh, and it's going to involve a solution uh, with Russia, uh, I think, in the end. Um, and so, you know, how they sit down and navigate that, do they compartmentalize uh, it the way that John Kerry seems to be trying to do? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then you get into Ukraine and NATO and all of the other issues out there. I mean, one other thing I would say is we, we often focus on our policy here, but you know, to a great degree, you can blame the deterioration of relationships in the Bush administration and, and, and the Obama administration on Russian actions. Um, mm -hmm. The invasion of Georgia in 2008, um, the, you know, the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So, uh, you know, we can manage a relationship, I think. We have to, but yeah. it, we can't assume that it's all in our hands to fix. Right. Michael, did you want to jump in on that? Well, I'm, uh, I'm wondering if we can blame it all on Russia. I, I remember I was in a meeting with uh, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Kozirev in 1996, <laughs> and uh, he was very concerned about the effect of NATO expansion on the uh, prospects for uh, further democratization in Russia. His argument was, you know, what are you guys doing? If you care about reform in Russia, 
why are you expanding NATO, particularly given uh, that uh, uh, Gorbachev uh, believed he had very uh, 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 solid assurances from the first Bush administration that NATO, in fact, uh, would not expand. Um, and that's pretty well documented uh, at, uh, at this point. So I think if we start asking about uh, whether the uh, problems in the relationship uh, are in our hands, I think we have to go back and ask, why did we expand NATO uh, when it was pretty clear uh, that a lot of the people we wanted to see uh, prosper in Russia were telling us that this would be uh, very bad for the future of reform and democracy? John, do you want to? Yeah, I'd like to echo that a bit and just go back to what doctrine might emerge if Secretary Clinton's elected. And, and if it's the prosecution of, of a rump containment uh, doctrine, I, I think that we pretty much can understand how that plays out. The, the claiming the, the label containment without, without buying the, the whole Kennan doctrine, I think, is, 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 is folly. Uh, Kennan was, was, was emphasized far more than, the, than this sort of fenced-in notion of containment, a, a deep understanding of, the, of, of cultural and political uh, currents within Russia, which I think, which I think are, are, are almost entirely absent from our prosecution of Russian policy today. So the, the constant vilification of, of Russian leaders, Kennan would have told you, you'll get the reaction that you've gotten now. Uh, going back to sort of how Mr. Trump sees Mr. Putin, I think he sees him, if you don't have a counterpart, I mean, it's a, in, a, in any business negotiation, you have to have a counterpart. If you, if, you, if, you don't go, if you go into a negotiation and you don't have one or you don't respect uh, uh, your, your, your counterpart, you're unlikely to yield anything. Mm -hmm. So it's very characteristic of the way he's talked about everybody. So getting back to the election, though, I want to I raise this, another question about Hillary Clinton, which sort of puzzles me, which is that, you know, why do you think that, um, the Russian government dislikes Hillary Clinton so much. And I, and I say that not, you know, this is not conjecture, I don't think, that they dislike her, because I was looking at some public opinion polling within Russia right now. Hillary Clinton is, or Donald Trump is five times more popular than Hillary Clinton within Russia, um, which neither of them are very popular, actually, but, okay. <laughs> it sounds dramatic when you say five times more popular, you know, but her, I mean, her popularity is very, very low. And that's reflective of a reality in Russian state television, both within Russia and also its English language um, programs here in the US, which unilaterally just like slam on her all the time and, and spin all sorts of conspiracy theories about her, um, that she's responsible for this or that, or you know, created ISIS or created um, the Bullet Night protests or you know various things, shot down MH17, I don't know, I mean, so. Um, why do you think why do you think they dislike Hillary so much? I'm happy to jump in with Miriam, some please. theories. Um, I think one, it's sexism, but we can put that aside. Really? Why why should we put that aside? Because <clears throat> it's kind of obvious. Powerful woman, <laughs> um, not necessarily um, you know a mainstay in Russian politics, and I think. Um, Politics is very much crafted as like a male sphere and traditional gender, gender roles and all that. But I think it's also very personal between Putin and Hillary Clinton. And the fact that, you know, during the Bolotnaya protests and during all the protests of late uh, 2011 and early 2012, 
um, you had Vladimir Putin personally blaming the protests on Hillary Clinton, saying that she was almost with her own hands paying protesters with money or cookies or whatever uh, to get them out into the streets uh, against him. So this is you know, a campaign that's been building for years and years. It didn't just come out of this election cycle. She sent a signal, he said, um, uh, what for was the protesters signal? to come out. It was some hand gesture. I don't know. I missed it. I was like, traveling okay. with her when it happened. But um, no, he, he literally thinks the State Department, through Clinton, uh, orchestrated the protest of the parliamentary elections in 2011. Um, the, the one thing I would add about the sexism, too, uh, Clinton herself tells the story uh, in her book um, of, of some of the times she met uh, Putin. And there's this scene where she was trying to engage with him um, uh, on sort of a, not personal level, but uh, knowing his interest in wildlife um, and nature con conservation efforts and so forth. You know, she asked him about it and he kind of very excitedly takes her down into his, in the basement, startling the guards that were down there, not expecting to see American Secretary of State come through and shows, showed her this polar bear uh, that was stuffed in a map and talked about efforts to protect the polar bear who's really endangered in, in the Arctic now, as we all know. And then at the end said, Bill should come and we'll go out tagging. I mean, he didn't, it didn't even occur to Putin that, well, maybe she would go. Um, and so it is, I think there is a kind of male sensibility to that. Um, but not necessarily openly hostile, but just something reflexive yeah. in Putin's mind. And, you know, I mean, his relationship with Merkel has also been strained. So I, I don't think we should um, discount the sexism at all in it. But I do think it's much more motivated by the sense that she was part of this effort that Putin at a time when he was, I think, feeling quite vulnerable uh, because of the protests in, um, in the Arab Spring, uh, the toppling of Gaddafi, he really thought that, you know, there was a Western, you know, campaign to topple dictators, you know, mm -hmm. starting in Tunisia and making its way to Syria and, you know, next stop Moscow. But there has been, hasn't there? They certainly believe there has been. Yeah. Um, Hillary Clinton is the uh, candidate of America as the indispensable nation. And also, as Steve was saying, uh, is the candidate uh, of militant democracy and militant liberalism. And, and that's just going to be uh, you know, a point of friction uh, for the leader of a country whose view of the world is very different um, from hers. Trump, in a sense, is uh, you know, probably a more congenial figure because uh, you know, uh, Putin sees uh, a similar sort of uh, mindset in terms of politics. Let's do a deal, even if you don't you know, like somebody, uh, let's find common ground. Ironically, uh, I don't think that they see that uh, in the Clinton administration. Hmm, interesting. Um, I mean, I, I sort of want to want to ask a follow up, but maybe it would be too argumentative. I don't know. <laughs> so you mean so you mean that Trump is not a militant Democrat or a well, militant, militant liberal? I, I think he's he's made that uh, very clear that one of the uh, the breaks uh, he would make uh, would be with the sort of end of history mindset that uh, you know we've sort of figured out. Uh, the way the world should be. I mean, you know, in a sense, as a businessman, he's committed to, uh, you know, a version of capitalism uh, and things like that. But on the other hand, I don't think you hear the sort of uh, ideological triumphalism 
uh, in uh, Trump that uh, you got in the first Clinton administration um, and that you often hear uh, uh, from uh, Secretary Clinton. Yeah. So let me go back to something we were talking about a bit earlier. Um, you know, we, I think we talked through, um, everybody more or less agrees that there's some level of Russian intervention or involvement in this election, right? I mean, there's fingerprints over the hacking, you know, sort of scandals and such. Um, and clearly they're, you know, tilted in one direction. I think people would agree with that. They tend to be tilted, you know, um, against Clinton at least. Um, and we also talked about the fact that, you know, for the American public, it's not clear that that's a major issue, right? In the sense that um, maybe people think it's time for a change in Russia policy anyway, um, or they're open to it. And anyway, foreign policy may not be the number one issue that voters are looking at. But I wonder, you know, that the, all those issues resonate very differently with the national security community, I would think, right? Because from a national security standpoint, what we in fact have is a foreign power intervening in our elections, you know, pushing at least against one candidate, if not in favor of another candidate, and doing it pretty effectively and in a way pretty openly. Um, you know, has, has the U.S. done anything to counteract that? And my follow-up would be anything effective to counteract this? I mean, or is that even on the table, really? John, do you want to? Let, let me suggest how that might be heard uh, elsewhere. And that's, to give an example, uh, two hours ago, Radio Liberty published a story that they had been given preferred access to the latest cyber junta hack mm -hmm. and uh, those documents. So we have to ask ourselves if we change the names and reverse that, and RT publishes a story and says it's been given preferential access to the latest WikiLeaks hack. How would that be heard here? Mm -hmm. um, there's, I'm not suggesting moral equivalency, but I am suggesting an, an element of symmetry. So we ought to understand this in, in its larger context uh, as a security matter because we rely on the opinion of our allies and others in uh, other parts of the world. And I don't think necessarily how, how we may believe this is, this is heard and perceived is in fact accurate. So are you saying that the, um, just to be clear about this, that the, uh, the cyber junta attacks um, were a U.S. retaliation? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm Russian saying attacks? is that when, when, when those documents are published or when, when a, an agency associated with the United States government is, is uh, rightly or wrongly, is given preferred access to those documents mm -hmm. and publishes those documents, it's, it's, I think the inference that's drawn by many people who hear that is that there's a connection, that it is in fact a U.S. Mm -hmm. government action. Or are you sort of saying that the U.S. regularly hacks into other people's um, political systems to influence the course of their elections? Is that I'm, what you're saying? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we certainly are as involved in other political systems as, as we claim others may be here. Yeah, um, I, I, I think our that. purpose is... Okay, is, good. I'm, I'm glad you got one taker here. In a sense, you know, what's, what's interesting is, is it's like we woke up one morning and the game started with uh, allegedly uh, the Russians uh, hacking the DNC as if there was no history before that in terms of uh, uh, you know, our relationship uh, with Russia. I mean, uh, you know, the, given the differences in our political systems, the overt manifestation of how we would uh, 
get involved um, in Russian politics would look different, but the idea that this is anything other than business as usual between two frenemies, uh, countries with both uh, common interests um, and uh, uh, divergent interests, seems a little bit naive. And so it, it adds uh, an element of unreality to the discussion uh, of you know, Russian intervention in American politics uh, you know, in the context of this election, as if it never happened before, or as if we never did it. Right. I'm going to push do, back I, and I say that it is actually unprecedented. Yes, uh, hacking has happened before. There's been numerous times where you know you have um, the U.S. hasn't officially called out Russia for hacking the into the State Department, into the Defense Department, but this is something that's been happening for years and years. The difference is that these emails were made public. The question is also the role of WikiLeaks, which hasn't been mentioned at all. The question is, how did this stuff get to somebody in an embassy in London and make its way into the wider world? This has never happened before. Whether we want to engage in questions of whataboutism is another story. I'm not saying that it's good or bad, but it is unprecedented. Steve, do you want to add to that? Or? Um, you know, the, in the in the administration, um, they've talked a little bit about. I mean, obviously they called Russia out, but they and they've said they will respond. Um, and I asked when uh, the circle of leaks came out, um, you know, might this be a response? And and somebody told me that they didn't think it was because, um, you know, there there is a concern that you you can begin to escalate. Mm -hmm. um, that if you know tit for tat, so it seemed to me like a nice you know you hack the DNC, we'll hack your political guy. Um, but somebody suggested that 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 wasn't the approach that they would take um, because they don't want to get into well then you've hacked Circle, so now we'll hack you know the the White House, and it just goes on and on and on. So I think that there's um, some effort to try to. Um, you know, contain this a little bit. I think they will respond in a way that probably most of us won't know about, uh, though we'll try. Well, the previous cases when the U.S. accused North Korea of hacking Sony, and they responded by, you know, issuing sanctions because they also didn't want to get into this escalating cyber war. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would just add is that it, it, it is business as usual to spy. I mean, we all do it. We, we, we want to know what's going on in the Russian political system, and we have people employed to do that. And, you know, it's true with them as well. And, of course, you know, that, that is business as usual. But I, I, I agree with Miriam that it, this is, if, if, as the intelligence agencies say, this um, was an effort by Russia to tilt the election one way or another, um, that isn't something that, that would be ordinary, I think. Well, but the, the history of Cold War, uh, you know, covert operations going back to the U.S. intervention uh, in the elections in Italy uh, immediately in the early Cold War period suggests that this is not unprecedented. The, the one thing I would say, though, is if you said, uh, if you asked me, uh, would I want the Russian cyber capability or would I want the American cyber capability, I would take the uh, American seven days a week, 365 days a year. Think about it. It was a Russian uh, internet security company that first bro broke the Stuxnet virus. Uh, probably uh, the most um, uh, effective and consequential example of cyber warfare we've seen yet. Um, it, you know, if you're looking at this from the Russian side, 
competing with uh, the West and particularly the United States in cyber, um, it's really an 800-pound gorilla you know, versus a chimpanzee. I wouldn't actually I, underestimate their, uh, their capabilities that way, actually. They're quite sophisticated. Somebody, I, I just wouldn't some, underestimate ours. No, no, absolutely. I, I agree with you on that. But the, uh, somebody in, in law enforcement uh, last week was uh, talking to me about this, and they, they talked about how the Internet, it, an American invention, um, Russians think CIA invention, um, but, you know, it's created this open space that we all live in now, and, it, and it's vulnerable. In places and the Russians, I think, were slow at that. They were slow inside Russia at understanding how the internet worked and how they would respond to it, the political um, threat that it posed in some ways. Um, if you read the, the great book, The Red Web, uh, talks a lot about how they kind of needed to manage this information space out there. And I think, and and according to these people that I've been talking to recently, they they think the Russians have caught up. They've gotten very good at understanding what both the vulnerabilities are and the opportunities for them. Well, I think we also have to qualify that virtually all cyber activity occurs in the dark and stays in the dark. So the question is, why is the product of espionage now moved into the daylight? And it moved into the daylight because it's useful, because it feeds into a Russian narrative. Again, the production of genuine documents, the release of documents that in effect speak for themselves, supports a Russian narrative, and that narrative is that the West is hypocritical. It's what Khrushchev said to the United Nations in 1960. If you live in a glass house, don't throw stones. Uh, putting, putting those documents into the public domain feeds the Russian narrative overseas in particular, but, but to some extent in the United States, that American political systems don't operate the way that we say they operate. They operate in a far different way, and here's evidence of it. So it's, it's a useful product, and we just got a small peek into that dark world. Yeah, I want, to, I want to challenge Michael that, you know, I mean, it, it strikes me that this is a highly consequential use of cyber warfare, right? If you're able to hack into somebody else's political system and tip the results of the election against the candidate that you don't like, um, it would strike me that that is maybe less technologically sophisticated than other things that we have capabilities of doing. I, I buy that argument. But nonetheless, this is extremely consequential. Yeah, I, well, it's a chicken or the egg question because, uh, you know, I, I think John's right that this is uh, an attempt using uh, real documents um, to uh, cause some mischief. But I, I don't, I wouldn't uh, blame uh, the Russian production uh, of these documents as uh, you know being the most consequential part of it. The fact of the matter is is that the contents of the documents resonate with uh, widespread widespread perceptions among many American voters uh, about uh, our political system. Um, and you know whether it was the Russians coming up with this stuff or you know WikiLeaks on their own. Uh, is uh, you know secondary to that that big question right now? Yeah. So um, you know this is uh, you know kind of fascinating discussion. I wonder if maybe now would be a good time to sort of open it up to the floor. I'm sure I'm sure we have quite a lot of people's interest at this point, and um, and maybe we can take a few questions, and maybe I'll interject at some later point. Um, this gentleman in the white shirt over there on the on the corridor. So. I think you may have to wait for a mic to come by just for the uh, for the recording that's happening. This is all on live TV, so no Chatham House rules here. Right? 
Th thank you. Good morning, and thank you for an interesting panel. Uh, David Colton with the HUR Group. My question to the panel is, uh, whom on the panel has actual operational experience in elective politics? Because what I'm hearing here is the Massachusetts Avenue narrative of U.S.-Russia. And I'll submit this as a friendly addition and welcome your comments. With Trump and what's left of the GOP base, the issue has never been really Russia, but it starts with race. And if you don't understand the racial connection and Vladimir Putin's role as representing a defender of white racialism, which began with the outreach to the GOP base in 2010, which is Pete Sessions, Stephen Miller, who wrote Donald Trump's address to Dimitri Symes at the Center for National Interest, there's the neocon, realist debate which we heard here, but there isn't an understanding of why Putin now has a 52% approval rating among Republican base who's going to vote for Putin. And it's not the geopolitics you're talking here. It starts with racial identification and anti-liberal democratic authoritarianism. If you miss that narrative, yeah. then you are surprised. Uh, let me just follow that up. I, I think that's a totally legit question, right, which is that, that we've been talking about one narrative of Putin and the way he's intersecting in the election, but another way that he's intersecting in the election is by positioning himself as the um, protector of Christian values uh, and therefore hooking into a kind of discourse in the alt-right. He's kind of a hero among certain um, white nationalists, essentially. Um, that's pretty much your question, right? You know. Yeah. And so why are we ignoring that? Is that your question? Like, why are well, we, it's part of the why GOP haven't base. we talked about it? Yeah. Right, and that, and that fits in a little bit to the narrative that I had earlier, which is like, isn't there a bigger change going on in the Republican Party and perhaps towards Russia than we think? I mean, what do you guys think about that? Well, first of all, I, I was student body president of my high school. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my last elected experience. Um, I... I I, I see your point, and um, I would push back a little bit in the sense that I think a lot of what motivates pro-Putinism uh, in this country is anti-Obama uh, attitudes. And uh, I remember when the, the, the red line in Syria um, that was not crossed, or was crossed by the Syrians, we didn't respond to that. Um, you know, and, and Vladimir Putin intervened with um, with. Uh, Obama to try to, you know, deal with Syria's chemical weapons issue in a way that was kind of successful. Um, the point that some have made that we should be cooperating uh, with Putin instead of um, opposing him. And I remember it was Matt Drudge who called Putin the leader of the free world, you know. So I don't think it's all just fringe. I don't think it's all just racism, but it is, I think, a response to um, what many think or some think is perceived weakness of Obama on foreign policy issues. I, I do think that the conservative values thing is, is something that resonates with people. Um, I would point out that it's pretty new in Putin. Um, you know, it's, it, it wasn't what you saw in the first uh, uh, terms of his presidency. Uh, so I, I think it's uh, convenient for him politically to some extent. And it does res resonate with some people here. I wouldn't say it's the entire Republican base by any means, but it certainly is an element. Michael, do you want to jump in really quickly on this point? Yeah, or I, take another question? Putinism, to the extent that there's a coherent ideology, is about Russian nationalism. Nationalism is renaissance in a lot of places around the world, including the United States. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Okay. Now there's a, a, an unbelievable raft of questions. And uh, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with this uh, this gentleman up here in the gray suit. So. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman uh, with the Atlantic Council and a recovering Sovietologist. Uh, an observation, and then my question. Uh, this has been going on for a long time. You may recall in your history books the Novia letter that the Soviets were trying to influence British politics. Uh, how do you think Franklin Roosevelt? Uh, recognized the Soviet Union that was not accidental comrade. And you had the whole Red Scares in the 40s and 50s. For those of you old enough, I Led Three Lives was a leading television documentary rooting out the red threat. And by the way, we did bug um, Brezhnev's Zill limousine for a long time. So it works on both sides. And I don't think there's anything really new here. My question is this, could we get one specific policy recommendation you would make if Hillary were to win or if Trump would win? I'm sorry, I have to say that that's the topic of our third panel today. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not, I don't think we're gonna get too deeply into policy recommendations. I'll take another couple questions and then if people wish to, wish to address that question, I'll certainly you know, allow that. But um, let me go to the gentleman here in the front. Um, who has a, could you bring the phone, phone over here? Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Albert Wolf. I'm from the office of uh, Congressman Steve Shabbat. And um, I wanted to ask you, there's sort of two questions in one. The first is, a lot of the discussion has been about Putin, the man, Putin, the decision maker. And if you go back maybe a week ago, there was the room for debate in the Times talking about how much does the individual leader matter? How much do you think that we're overstating the agency of Vladimir Putin? And do, you, do any of you buy the argument that Putin is actually just, he's just a typical uh, Russian statesman, and whoever replaces him whenever that occurs is, like, is unlikely to be significantly different? Right. And the second thing is, is that, you know, it was just announced that, you know, Kiryenko, of all people, is now going to be the deputy chief of staff in the Kremlin. You know, what do you think that signals? Do you think that there might be a, a reset on the Russian part of things? Right. Or do you think it's meaningless? Let me, you know, let me just say to you, and these are great questions, um, but I'm going to exercise my authority as moderator on a panel that's focusing on the election and the Russia factor in this election in the United States to uh, ask everybody who's raising their hands to uh, focus their questions on the U.S. election in the U.S. side. But maybe people, again, will come back to that. And I'm also going to choose people in the back uh, over there. So I'm going to choose uh, this gentleman on the, um, on the aisle. Uh, thank you. I'm Leon Weinschaub, uh, Foreign Service, retired. Uh, I'd like to address the discussion of whether Trump is an admirer of Russia or admirer of Putin. I think that's off the mark. I think what he's shown is that he's an admirer of a strong leader. What, and and uh, the, just the way Trump has gained the system here in the United States as far as his, his, his use of bankruptcies, his use of the tax system, who knows what other kind of things he's done. He likes the way Putin has gained that system, whether he can be elected over and over again, what he's done in Ukraine, what he's done in the Crimea, how he's able to support Assad. I think he's an admirer of, this, of the strong leader, and he doesn't pay. We've seen, by the way he addresses foreign policy issues, he's really not focused so much on the issues what it seems is focuses on the strong leader. Yeah, great. Um, maybe collect from also from the back over there. Yes. 
Mitchell Pullman. Uh, I recently returned from Russia where I was elections observing for the OSCE. Uh, I've worked in domestic politics and I do some freelance writing. Um, I um, My own feeling is that um, I asked a question, do policymakers do a good job in relating to the average voter exactly what, what the challenge from Russia is? I mean, ordinary voters can relate, they can understand what the threat is from Islamic State and from uh, radical Islam. But when you go online, you look at internet chatter, you see a lot of people say, well, what's the big deal about Russia? Why do we care about Russia? Um, it, it's amazing to me that our government has arrested any number of Russian cyber criminals who've uh, hacked the bank accounts of American citizens, American businesses, and we seldom see any of that in the media. And our policymakers, including Hillary Clinton, never raise it as an issue in, in any big way. I mean, the Russian government defends those people. Uh, they they uh, accuse us of kidnapping their citizens, but we seldom uh, see any pushback on that. So I guess my question is, could we be doing a better job in explaining uh, to rank and file citizens exactly why we should be concerned about Russia if that's not in fact part of the problem? Yeah, those, those are two great questions. One is, can we do a better job of explaining why this is a problem right, to people, presuming they don't know that already? And the other question was really about, you know, is back to Putin, is, is, is Trump's admiration for Putin rather about the fact that he's a strong leader rather than anything in policy? So I don't know who wants to pick those guys up, those questions up. I, I was just going to say, if we started making uh, cyber crime uh, a major issue in our relations with other countries, it uh, strikes me that Russia would not be the only or maybe even the top of the list in terms of uh, places uh, where that sort of activity goes on. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that would, would help. I mean, I think that the, the American public, in fact, has a, a pretty good sense uh, of what the issues are. And the issues are, on the one hand, Putin's not a Democrat and he's done some nasty things, particularly in Crimea. Um, and in the eastern Ukraine. But on the other hand, they also have concluded we don't have a dog in those fights, and there are other fights that they're happy to let the Russians take the lead in, particularly in Syria, which is much closer to issues the American public really cares about, which is international terrorism, top of everybody's list. I, I would agree that, that, I mean, and this is not just true in this election, that foreign policy rarely is the decisive factor, I think, for most people. Um, and, you know, this kind of answers the question about Trump as well. I think that, the, you know, his admiration uh, that he's expressed um, for, for Putin and for, for Russia, um, you know, I, I actually think it's kind of sincere. I don't think it's as thought through to your question. I think he had a great time at Crocus City Mall with Miss Universe. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, it, Moscow is a great place. You can have a great time there. And so I think that it's almost an emotional reaction in that sense. And then um, I think that we've talked already about that it's a question of how he perceives a weakness in Obama as much as, you know, Putin being tough. Um, you know, cause some people would argue that, that Putin's not really on a great winning streak right now either uh, for all this alleged toughness of, of, that he's, he's showing. Um, but I think that 
for, for voters in the election as they're deciding, if they're with Trump because they're with Trump, then they're gonna probably say, well, maybe Putin, maybe not, but it's not gonna be, they're not gonna be with Trump because, hey, here's the candidate who's pro-Putin. I hadn't thought of that before. I've, I've been looking for that leader. Um, or the reverse, by the way. And, and I already mentioned that I, I think the Democrats um, have been quite effective at tarring um, Trump with Putin. Uh, and that's been a very deliberate strategy on their part. Um, so, but again, I'm, I'm not sure that that's going to win many voters because, you know, you're going to um, be with Clinton or you're going to be with Trump. And I don't think Putin's going to decide it for you. I was going to, you know, Mr. Putin's name, Putin has become a trope. And it's, and it's spoken of that way in a way that other foreign leaders or Russian leaders probably haven't. Uh, but I think to the, to the question, if you don't think about matters clearly, you're unlikely to explain them in, in clear terms. And I think what underlies the lack of clarity on, on the explanation is a lack of clarity of thought. So a beginning point might be to say, here's a declaration of our interests in, for example, the Black Sea maritime space. These are our geopolitical interests there. Um, I, I challenge anybody to find somewhere in the, in the debate over the last 15 months where anybody has said anything like that. So if we're not able or unwilling to articulate what our interests are in a critical part of the world, I think it's unlikely that voters are somehow going to, going to infer that on their own. Can I, can I press on something too, which is, you know, I mean, part of the question is about understanding, part of the question is about response, right? And I want to press the panelists. I wasn't really that satisfied in a way with the discussion we had about how to respond to this, right? Because I think everybody agrees something is happening, right? We are being intervened in, right? But I heard a lot of disparate information about should we even be concerned about that? Um, I hear some people saying, well, we do the same thing, you know, and so what's the big deal? Or, you know, Target got hacked or, you know, something like that, you know. But, but I mean, the fact is, like, I would, I would suggest that there is a national security issue Right, you know, here where you have a foreign power intervening in your election. Certainly, Latin American countries tend to feel that's true, right? If they, they have elections that they get intervened in. Um, you know, so I don't see why it's so, so troubling that the U U.S. would think that. So what's our response? Well, if, if I can jump in, I started by saying, reminding you of, of FDR's comment about fear and, and the only thing to fear is fear itself. I, I think we can overreact to this. And, and we shouldn't. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, they, 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 let's just assume, Putin himself has hacked into the DNC and given these emails to, uh, to WikiLeaks, and we've all read them. It's great for journalists, by the way. And um, uh, so, I mean, that isn't an attack on us. I mean, it, I think it's weaponizing information. It's part of this game that's been going on. Uh, it's uh, spycraft in a way. Um, but, you know, in, I mean, I can tell you in the, in the national security uh, side of town, people are very concerned about this. They're very concerned about the election uh, systems themselves, the, the voting. Uh, they're going to be on alert on Tuesday and beyond, I think, about what this threat poses. But I think we can, we can, we can be hysterical if we're not careful. So maybe the answer is not satisfying to you, but that we shouldn't do a lot in response. Well, that's an answer. And, you know, I was going to ask, like, a slight follow-up question, which is, you know, how about the media? You mentioned the media, right? How do you feel as journalists, I guess, is more targeted to you, you know, that the media has responded to this issue? And do you think that that response has been adequate? 
<laughs> I guess we're going um, to take that as an editor, right? I don't know. Well, I, I would, I mean, first of all, I love the media. Um, <laughs> no, no, the, we, we've all made mistakes, I think. Uh, uh, I'll include uh, the New York Times in that. But, you know, I think that we've done a pretty good job. And, and, and our job is to inform. Somebody talked about informing people, um, you know, and, you know, you do your best. And th there's been some sloppy reporting, I think. There's been some mistakes made. Um, but, you know, by and large, and speaking of the Russian question, you know, I'm, I'm often accused of being anti-Putin or um, the other day I was accused of being pro-Putin, which was a shock. <laughs> um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, it kind of goes to the hysteria point that I was making, that if you just keep reporting the facts out, the facts eventually get out, the election will be over at some point, God willing, and, you know, then we'll, we'll you know, keep reporting facts, we'll keep learning more about these hacks, about Russia's intentions, about what the next administration is going to do. I mean, that's all we can do, really. I think there's been a, a yeah go ahead yeah. I mean there's been like a, a range of work there's been like incredibly careful work like Steve has been doing at the times and then there's work that has like fed this hysteria a bit it's weird when like the subject you love is like taken up by you know people who kind of latch onto it with maybe like a, a passing expertise and then it can whip up this kind of hysteria where I think especially over the past few months it seems like people are like looking for this like little red telephone on Trump's desk and the little red telephone on Putin's desk and they're looking for this, you know, for these commands to be coming from the Kremlin uh, straight into Trump's ear and maybe without an understanding of like that Russia doesn't even have to work that way in order to mess with the election in the way that it wants to. I think there's, I mean, there's been a wide range and some great, some probably not yeah. so great. Uh, John? I was going to, this is largely the debate we had in the country in the 1930s about Nazi propaganda that led to the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, it, very similar debate in terms of the, the effect of propaganda within the United States. It's Ironic, I think, that Mr. Putin cites that act repeatedly in cracking down on NGOs within, within Russia. Mm -hmm. But the, the, we, I, I think we want to be cautious about how much uh, power we ascribe to, to Russian soft power within the United States. Uh, I, mean, I understand RT is on cable channels, but for those who have watched RT, I, I don't think we've seen a flood of, you know, of American viewers both to watch it or somehow that, that it's changed American opinion. If it didn't, I don't think Dr. Stein would be bouncing around at 1%. So it's, I think we have to be cautious about, about how much potency mm -hmm. we ascribe to Russian soft power within the United States. Do you want to add to that point? This is going to be a historic election, but it's not going to be a historic election because of Russian meddling. It's going to be a historic uh, election because it'll be indicative uh, of pretty fundamental changes in the historic fault lines in American politics. Um, and I think there's a danger uh, in sort of losing sight of that if we say, oh, you know, it's all uh, being driven by, uh, you know, the uh, nefarious activities of a, of a foreign actor. There are big fundamental structural things that are going on that would mm -hmm. be going on uh, irrespective of sure. who's in the big office in the Kremlin. One time for one more question. I think we're going to end in the back here, standing up. We still have 20 minutes? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Asta Benonis, I'm a volunteer with the Lithuanian American Community Incorporated, and I've been bemused a bit by the panelists claiming that uh, Trump's 
pro-Putin, pro-Russian imperialism comments haven't been heard by the communities of Eastern European Americans. Our members months ago became alarmed at not only uh, Trump's ignorance, but his characterization of NATO as a protection racket, that he thinks he can do a deal with Putin, that brings to mind Molotov-Ribbentrop from the 1930s. So I think people should remember there are American citizens out there with a memory of history and events and value the fact that NATO helped secure the democratic revolutions of the 19, late 1980s. Yeah, may I ask you a question, actually, while well, we have you on that point, um, and you have the mic. Um, can, you, can you identify for us um, particular states where you feel like the election may depend on this type of voter that you're talking about? I presume we're talking about predominantly East European voters or non-Russian East European voters who are living, and they are living concentratedly in certain states. Do you, do you have a sense of any elections in particular states that may tip because of this? Well, traditionally, one would think that our members are in the Rust Belt. Uh, and certainly, if you go back to our um, parents' or grandparents' generation, you'll have those voters in Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, but our members, actually, we have around 70 chapters in 27 states, including Alaska and Hawaii and the Sun Belt. So uh, I would imagine that's true for most of the other Eastern European ethnic communities. We had a good story um, from one of my colleagues who covers politics uh, about Ohio, particularly. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a large enough... Um, Eastern European bloc there that, that it could have an effect on the, the outcome. You're absolutely right. I, I don't think it's going to swing Alaska, but, um, but, but Ohio and Pennsylvania is another one, both very close states um, where, you know, a, a few percentage points would make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike? I mean, there's a long and well-documented history uh, of uh, ethnic special interest groups uh, shaping U.S. electoral politics. Um, but there's also a countercurrent. Uh, for example, where's the Cuban lobby these days uh, on U.S.-Cuban relations? In fact, if you look, uh, uh, a changed policy and opening to Cuba is a bipartisan policy at this point, and the old Cuba lobby isn't what it once was. Somebody lived for six years in Chicago and is intimately uh, familiar uh, with uh, Baltic politics, I'm, I might suggest that uh, that also might be something that demography uh, may be diluting uh, as time goes on. Okay, um, other questions from the audience? I'm informed we have a lot more time, and so I want to encourage everybody to, <laughs> to ask some questions. Uh, this gentleman in the uh, second from the uh, left over here. Uh, uh, first, uh, Mike, work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Peter Sharfman, Mitre Corporation. Uh, for, uh, one sentence observation that uh, Trump isn't saying that he wants the United States to do what Putin wants. He's saying that Putin is a role model that he thinks is worth emulating. It's a different. It's a different way of being pro-Putin. Right. 
the, the question has to do with the, uh, the way in which the, w the way in which U.S. electoral politics may or may not be changing, apart from realignments on issues. Uh, it's not unprecedented, but this is the first time since about 1945 that any foreign government has made a serious effort to in influence a U.S. election. And for most of my lifetime, the United States has been unique in the world and being the only country whose elections were not being influenced by foreign governments. And assuming that that's, you know, this isn't just a one shot, that in the world of uh, the internet, uh, we can expect all of our politics to be a target for other countries whose interests are affected by who gets elected. Uh, is this going to make a change in the way in which the United States conducts our democratic politics? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Now, Michael, do you want to turn? Well, I was just going to say, if you were to ask uh, the Obama administration whether they agreed with your proposition that this is the first time a foreign government has directly intervened in our political process, they might point to the uh, unprecedented and quite controversial speech by the Prime Minister of Israel uh, to the American Congress in the context of a uh, presidential election. So in, in a sense, you know, this is business as usual. Uh, uh, foreign governments uh, or interest group, domestic interest groups uh, with foreign connections uh, have long tried to influence American politics going back to the, uh, you know, the revolutionary period and the founding fathers. So it's not new. Um, it's just the medium is new. Um, and it's uh, connected, I think, with a, uh, a really important uh, election that we're going to remember uh, for other reasons. I was going to say, I was thinking not of that, but the Sinfuegos crisis of the early 1970s, which was a fairly overt effort to, to exert political influence within the United States when you put Soviet ballistic uh, missile submarines in the Caribbean. Uh, so I don't think it's novel. I think what is novel is the cyber domain, which I think we have not, we don't understand particularly well. We haven't really thought through the policy implications of it because it's relatively new, and for the most part, it's not well understood. Again, it's, it, it functions in the dark. So. What we have today, which is different, I think, is that domain. That domain has never had the prominence that it has today. It certainly is not going to go away. So there's an area for the next president to, to think about. I want to recognize Ambassador Besoro. Thanks, Adrian Besoro, Foreign Policy Research Institute. Uh, we've talked a lot, a lot about the precedents for intervening in the US elections. But we haven't talked about very explicitly, and I refer back to Michael Desch's points, that we have been intervening in, in, in as Putin would perceive it, or other uh, Eastern European, other former communists and authoritarians, for a long time. Democracy is an existential threat to Putin. We promote democracy. That's our policy. Therefore, we are promoting something. It's not just NATO expansion. It's democracy. Okay. He's against that, he will intervene as much as he can. My question is, for you both as a star from a historical perspective and also as journalists, uh, is there any longer support in the American electorate? This is not being talked about, except that 
well, Hillary will say he's an authoritarian or a dictator, but there's really no discussion of whether the old vision of the American uh, signing, shining city on the hill and promotion of democratic values and protection of human rights, that's not been discussed very much in the election. Is it because we are losing much support other than the Eastern Europeans who don't want Poland to be reinvaded? Um, uh, what, what is your take on the meaning of this election in terms of what the American electorate will and will not support from a future president knowing that Putin will continue to protect his authoritarian regime and that we, unless we change our policies drastically, will continue to be seen as a, an existential threat because democracy is exactly yeah. the antithesis of his rule and that of many other authoritarians. Right. Uh, you know, or my, my impression from having covered democracy promotion uh, both in Washington but on the receiving end um, in Russia, Belarus, in Iraq uh, where I was based for a while is that that mission has fallen greatly as a uh, Bipartisan, uh, by the way, I think, um, in, in our foreign policy. Um, you know, there was the freedom agenda at the end of the Bush administration um, that they pressed, um, which, you know, the Russians will point to uh, as, as being an existential threat, you know, in Ukraine, in Georgia, even in Russia itself. Um, but the Obama administration, I think, as they have more broadly, have, have said, you know, we need to engage the world differently. Um, and they've, they've not pushed that as hard, despite what Putin thinks. I don't think Hillary Clinton was trying to orchestrate uh, the overthrow of the Putin regime in 2011 and 12. Um, so I think in, in some respects that the, the Trump worldview of also like, let's fix our problems at home, let's make America great again, it's not our business over there. Um, I think that's true for voters, uh, at least ones that I've encountered, with the exception of very active um, uh, you know, uh, blocks out there. You know, where I'm from in Central California, Ukraine's just not a big issue, uh, to be honest. Uh, I don't think Georgia was, uh, you know, and I, th I think that both Clinton is perceived as being a more activist um, uh, foreign policy uh, uh, or having a more activist foreign policy. Um, but I think she will also, uh, if elected, more or less reflect the view of the Obama administration of sort of like we need to disengage a little bit. Not entirely. I don't think anyone um, is, is advocating that the United States walk away from the rest of the world. I don't think you can in this day and age. Um, but the, the aggressive policy of promoting a democracy abroad, I think, is, is far down the uh, priorities. Great. So we have um, time for one more question, I believe. I'm going to recognize the lady in yellow in the back over there. Hi, Rachel Oswald, reporter with Congressional Quarterly. I'm interested to hear from the panel on what you think the fallout will be for the Republican um, national security establishment in Congress from Trump's um, popularity with the GOP rank and file and these um, murky Russian stances and isolationist um, general tendencies. Do you think that Republicans in Congress going forward will continue to take a very hawkish position on Russia regarding things like arms control accord, uh, providing lethal weapons to the Ukrainians and such? Yeah, so this is a little different from the question I asked earlier about the sort of uh, foreign policy security establishment. This is more of the congressional 
leadership on the Republican side, you know, who is a little more open to electoral influence, you know, what, what are they going to be doing uh, about this? And maybe some of the journalists, I don't know if you study, follow Congress at all, but uh, Michael, you want to go ahead? Well, a, a lot depends on what happens next Tuesday. If Trump wins, uh, you know, I think the uh, shakeout from that in terms of, you know, the establishment Republican foreign policy community is going to be quite dramatic. On the other hand, if he loses, the short-term effect will be to reinforce their conventional wisdom, you know, which has sort of animated uh, uh, how they've thought about foreign policy, uh, you know, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, so I, I think, but given that uh, foreign policy is really an inside the beltway sort of issue, uh, the effects will be somewhat muted. Um, the issues that most voters are going to care about, particularly in terms of uh, congressional elections, just aren't going to register uh, with them. Uh, so I think they'll be able to uh, go along with business as usual, uh, assuming Trump loses. Uh, if he does win, uh, all bets are off. So I think that's actually a great place to wrap up. Um, oh, sorry, John, do you wanna, did you want to add something? Please? I was just going to say, I, I think there are opportunities to capitalize on that, one of which would be a focus on an area like the Northern Triangle, which takes in I'm do, sorry, the, what? the Northern Triangle in southern, uh, southern Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, where we have an irregular threat that drives migration flows, that drives drug flows. These are all issues that have been raised in the election that have serious foreign policy implications that are virtually undiscussed. So there are opportunities, I think, in the foreign policy realm to take the message from this election and to apply those in the, in the policy realm. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great place to start to stop because you know I think it's a consensus, as far as I can see, among the panel that um, in with uh, one outcome, uh, conventional wisdom will be reinforced uh, potentially on Tuesday, and another in another uh, uh, outcome, conventional wisdom will be sort of you know out the window, right? Um, and um, we are going to be in a new world. That's the subject of the third panel, and um, uh, today I hope you'll stick around for that. Um, but I think it's time now to transition on to the second panel, which will deal with uh, uh, a particular policy issue of the sanctions regimes. Anyway, um, thanks so much for everybody's questions, for your attention, for your discussion today. I thought it was really interesting. Um, thanks so much for the panelists, and, uh, and we're adjourned. Thank you.